Alexander Makarovsky is our guest on the show today. He describes himself on his LinkedIn profile as an algorithm developer, but I can tell you he's much more than that. Alex says he is motivated by mathematics within the energy sector, and I'm keen to dive into that in detail in this podcast. In fact, this is going to feature very heavily on energy and some of the big picture thinking on where energy production is headed. Alex was the 2019 CBA John Monash Scholar. As part of the Monash Scholarship, he studied a Master of Science in Mathematical Modeling and Scientific Computing at the University of Oxford. Alex, welcome back to the Scholars Podcast. Thank you very much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. I mentioned there that you're motivated to apply mathematics to the energy sector. How are you doing that? And is it even possible? Thanks, Justin. It's an interesting question. In terms of energy and decarbonization, I think there's a lot of, of media coverage and it becomes difficult to sometimes evaluate different sorts of technologies and means of undertaking the, the clean energy transition. There's lots of different options um, that, that people and, and companies can undertake in terms of decarbonization. So, you know, for instance, building solar farms, building wind farms, investing in storage, investing in more transmission, so on and so forth. There's clearly a lot to do. And it's a question of how do you go about these different sorts of approaches? People also talk about other approaches as well, such as nuclear. And so given the set of all these options, you know, and you've got a fixed amount of money you can invest in, basically um, the sorts of questions become, what should you do in order to decarbonize your economy? And you can essentially formulate a lot of those problems as optimization problems. You can study them as I want to um, meet meet power with uh, at a minimum cost, you know, in the in the year 2050, or I want to um, provide power with a certain level of reliability, subject to uh, an emissions constraint, on, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I'm I'm interested in in formulating energy problems as uh, mathematical optimization problems that we can then um, solve. So tell us specifically, Alex, about the kind of work that you, you're doing now. What's your job at the moment? Yeah, so currently I work as a software developer at a, um, at a company called Energy Exemplar. I think it's now the world's largest power system uh, market simulation software. So in, uh, in that software, Plexos, um, you can model generators, lines, uh, hydro storages, batteries, what have you, electric vehicles, so on and so forth, all massive components of, of, of your, your power system. And um, when you're modeling all of those components, you can then sort of do these like uh, long-term studies. So that's like, you know, out to 20, 30 years that you can define a whole bunch of um, things that you could build and invest in. And, um, and the software then goes away, converts that into an optimization problem, solves it, and then tells you the results of your study. So that's like a long-term a long-term study that you can do with the software. So I, I work um, in developing that. So I add new features to the software, uh, make it run faster, help people anal- solve um, different types of problems. So for instance, uh, handling the intermittent nature of renewable generation. Yeah, how, how you um, also optimally dispatch your, your storages and so on and so forth. So I uh, help translate yeah, energy problems into mathematical problems. There'll be a lot of people listening to this, Alex, that don't realize all the behind the scenes work that is done to keep the lights on. Yes. So I, I imagine it's just, oh, well, I just turned the light on and there it was. So can software and mathematics help make energy more efficient? 
Yes, absolutely. Currently, every day in the um, the national electricity market, which is the electricity grid, and in uh, yeah, Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, the ACT, and and Tasmania. So uh, every every five minutes since um, when when was this uh, the start of the market operations? Ninety five, ninety six. Yeah, every five minutes, a computer essentially sends out a new set of uh, instructions to all the all the generators all the way um, you know ac- across that entire grid. Um, and so the, the problem it's solving there is to is to supply power at minimum cost. So all these um, all the generators, which we call market participants, will submit um, their, their bid information. So how how cheaply they can you know produce produce energy, and then the uh, the, the dispatch engine will then sort of takes that in, in, into consideration. But the dispatch engine also has knowledge about well how much power can flow through different sorts of lines and so on and so forth. The dispatch engine also has knowledge about contingency and redundancy. There are some very, very large generators um, in the in the national electricity market. So I think there's one up in um, up in Queensland which can produce uh, as a peak output of 700 megawatts, which is a lot. But then um, that the electricity system um, uh, always has to be redundant. So if that generator were to trip, which you know might happen, you know th- things things happen all the time. They're very complicated, um, very complicated uh, bits of machinery. You, you need capacity on the rest of your network to be able to ramp up and, and meet all that customer load, um, you know, without without anyone anyone losing power. So the yeah, the dispatch engine it takes into consideration about yeah fifty thousand of these you know transmission line limits, voltage control limits, and then uh, these sorts of redundancy constraints as well in order to meet power every single five minutes. So um, so that's that's happened um, yeah literally every five minutes. Um, since since the 90s, and so I would say mathematics is really is at the heart of our, our power system. Uh, more broadly than that, uh, more broadly than that, uh, mathematics is also used to um, to time the um, the do outage planning for a lot of different um, components of the power system. What's that bl- like preparing for blackouts? No, well, it's trying to avoid blackouts, blackouts and and brownouts. So you always have to maintain, um, you know. Um, big transmission lines. You might have to replace bits of equipment. Um, generators have to go offline for you know, a few weeks a year to to, um, to you know to maintain and swap out uh, seals and things like that that have a limited operational lifetime. And so, if you have all of these, if you have all your um, generators that want to want to do outage at the same time, well, no one's going to be left um, running the lights on. You, you know, you, you can you can appreciate. So, um, so yeah, that that's actually quite a large. Um, uh, optimization problem. That's but the the time frame is de- very different. It's kind of over. You have this rolling a rolling horizon of um you know two years out out in advance when when people are trying to schedule maintenance windows. So that, that's another um optimization problem that's solved. Yeah, all the time in um in grids worldwide. And yeah, I j- just finished a um a project working in collaboration with um the Australian Energy Market Operator in um in in WA actually. So they've they've just gone live with the new with the new outage planning system. We hear a lot, Alex, about. Australia's reliance on fossil fuel and the move towards renewable energy. It seems as though the wheels of change are moving very slowly, but potentially we're getting there. Can you offer an opinion on how Australia is stacking up for a future, for an energy future, reliant on renewable energy rather than our dependence in the past on fossil fuels? It's a great observation. Australia, in, in in comparison to a lot of other countries, though it can seem we are moving quite slowly uh, at times. We, Australia is installing renewables at, I think it's twice the rate of the of the next um, the next fastest country in in terms of the the OECD uh, nations. So, so on in 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 the frame of um, nations worldwide, 
Australia on a per capita basis in- installs renewables twice as fast as, as as anyone. So from from that perspective, I think I think people should be proud of of the of the transition that's that's occurred to date in Australia. Um, and in terms of um, in terms of the years to come, I think that that uh, that transition will, will continue. We'll continue to see uh, you know more solar and wind and so on and so forth um, deployed here in Australia. We're, we're also becoming um, we've also learned how to do it really cheaply as well. So you know we've seen um, that the price of panels and inverters and so on and so forth has fallen at an impre- unprecedented rate over sort of t- ten to fifteen years, sort of on the order of. Um, a tenth of the price um, as as what people are paying, sort of, you know. In the- this is for this is for solar. Yes, yeah, that that's correct. We, yeah, we've got engineering firms that are becoming increasingly skilled at, at doing it, and um, yeah, and we expect the prices at which we can continue to commission renewables will continue to come down. So everyone talks about clean energy. It's one of the big challenges of our time. Is clean energy something that you're focused on at the moment? I, I think I think clean energy really is 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 a key. Towards um, towards international development uh, worldwide, you know, we see um, you know a lot of economists, you know, they observe that as people, um, as economies develop, the you know the energy consumption uh, per capita goes up, and um, and so, but everyone can understand that well if if um, if the entire world were to deliver lifestyle lifestyle like uh, you or I or um, you know people in the U.S. Or, or so on and so forth, that our carbon emissions would really be very very high. And people understand that that would would cause um, very significant environmental environmental impacts that everyone's aware of. You know that's um that's not new grounds by any means. So um, yeah, so there's sort of a, a bit of a race on on globally um, in order that yeah to provide uh, to not only decarbonize uh, existing energy systems but to provide clean energy systems to um, to developing countries. And I think I think that's part of um, that's part of the equation that sometimes gets left out. I think that too many people focus on you know emissions um, emissions in one particular country or in Australia or so on and so forth. When from the physics of the problem, it doesn't matter if a, a unit of, uh, of of carbon dioxide is emitted in our backyard or in, or in, or in, or in India or in China, it, it simply doesn't matter. Um, and so that's why yeah, it really is a, a worldwide problem, and that's something that yeah, I, I think um, people should always be cognizant of. But if you look at the Australian context, is the impediment. Uh, is it cost to move to clean energy, renewable energy, or is it political will trying to bring the party and the people with them on that journey? I, I, cost is definitely a factor. Yeah, there, there is a tremendous uh, amount of investment required to um, to build a clean energy system in Australia. Like the, the the scope of that really is is enormous. You know, people. People appreciate that you know we're trying to close down. Um, well, I guess you know companies and investors and so on and so forth that are trying to call, are trying to close um, old polluting assets such as um, coal-fired power stations. Um, and but when they're not just sort of changing the generation of the existing electricity system, the the electricity system is also planning to completely replace um, you know the the gas, the domestic gas network for use in cooking. Um, the electricity system it's it's also going to service all the energy. Um, for for well, most of the energy for for transport as well. So you know all of the energy that people currently burn in petrol and diesel in you know their commuting and so on and so forth. That energy is is also going to be serviced by the electrical grid. Not to mention our population will grow. Um, people's per per, cons- per um, capita consumption of energy will also grow. So the actual the actual quantity of energy that we're going to service through the electricity grid is uh, it's it's something like twice um, as as much as 
we, we currently service out in the year 2050. So, um, so there, there is a tremendous cost in, in, you know, in, in doing that, and which definitely is one barrier. Politically, I, I do think in Australia, um, uncertainty at the federal level has created a lot of um, it's created a lot of uncertainty for investors. And I do think that if there had been, um, you know, bipartisan support and and more consistent energy policy, that investors would be more willing to uh, um, invest. In, in in clean energy technology, and therefore that therefore that we would be farther along in the in the um in the transition. So I think I think both cost and and political will are factors as to why um, the transition is not going faster. But th- there are the there are other factors as well that I think we, we should mention. Yeah. So so I think um I think uh, transmission um, augmentation and and the construction of new transmission lines uh, that that's been. Um, people, uh, lots of lots of parties now in, in the energy sector are identifying that as a key choke point. Um, so, for historical context, the existing transmission infrastructure in Australia it connects um, load centres. You know, so obviously your your cap, your CBDs and um, and your smelters in places like Portland and Victoria. It connects load centres to um, to generators, and so in Victoria, that's like the Latrobe Valley. And so you've got areas of the country with with gas and and coal deposits, basically, and um, and those connections. So the regions of the the regions of the country which are um, have gas and coal deposits, they're generally quite different to the regions of the country which have quite good, which are sunny and windy. So in in Victoria, um, there are a lot of people trying to build solar farms up up in Mildura because that's um, one of the sunniest spots in, in Victoria. But then the transmission capacity from Mildura to Portland or Mildura to Melbourne, for instance, is uh, is is not as great or anywhere near that as uh, as as say um, from the Latrobe Valley to Portland. So um, so yeah, so the, tr- the transmission it it does take a long time. You know, you have to get um, stakeholder buy-in and um, um, and you have to engage with local communities as well because um, yeah, definitely if you owned. Um, well, I'm not sure if you do, Justin, but uh, yeah, if you owned, uh, you know, a farm somewhere, I definitely don't. Yeah. Okay. Well, then, there you go. But that's um, yeah. If if you owned, you know, a farm um, between um, Mildura to, to Portland, you know, first of all, you know, you should have a right to. You definitely should um, shouldn't be forced to to have anyone to come and install um, transmission lines on your property. And if you are open to that, you know, you would expect adequate co- compensation. So it takes, and you, you've got to do that for hundreds of, of, of farms and properties. Therein lies the problem. Yes, yeah, so therein, therein lies the problem as well. And yeah, there are other there are other factors as well, like the um, the billion dollar investments, like a large scale, large scale, um, long transmission infrastructure. And so there's there's a regulator that then has to um, dot the I's and cross the T's that when when that um, transmission investment is made, that there will be um, that basically at least that much benefit will be delivered to the consumer in terms of uh, in terms of lower power prices, and so um, so there's a bit of double handling in, in our in our um, uh, in our power sector, whereby um, the large transmission network companies, so NSA, that's Electronet, they'll go and do an economic analysis of a new transmission line. They'll conclude something's worthwhile. Then they have to go to the regulator. Have to have to then do their own analysis once again. You know, go back and forth for a bit. Then it'll finally get the green light. Uh, before construction can even begin, which can be two or three years, so it's it's kind of about a seven years to actually actually um, build large scale transmission infrastructure. When building a new solar farm is only about six months. Yeah, so that's really why um, people are seeing transmission as, as the key bottleneck. And can any of these clean energy solutions, renewable energy solutions, replace fossil fuels in terms of providing base load power? Will you still need a combination? 
So there will still be a small amount of, um, in particular, gas. Um, gas capacity in Australia's grid out, out, out to 2050 and, and possi- possibly below, possibly uh, beyond. But it won't be um, base load from the perspective of, of running all the time. So it'll be um, it'll be mainly coming on, you know, on the order of like two to three percent of the time, a small amount of gas, um, kind of to to meet um, what what in, Ger- in German they're called Duncan Dunkelflaut or um, like a wind drought. So um, particularly period, periods overnight, um, which are yeah very difficult to to service with with, uh, with wind wind generation. So there will still be a small amount of gas capacity in the grid, but the actual um, the CO two emissions and um, the actual quantity of the time we'll be running will be will be quite quite low. So um, and so to, so to answer your question, absolutely renewables um, can and can and I would say are um, meeting um, Australia's electricity demand. Uh, you know, in in uh, I would look to um, South Australia for for an example of a grid which is uh, running with a really really high proportion of renewables um, and and really leading the world in terms of how we do that and manage manage the risks involved. What about nuclear energy in Australia, Alex? Where do you see that debate going? I think the debate will, will continue um, concerning nuclear energy. Um, I think the, the the key bottleneck that that's sort of been identified by um, you know people such as Alan Finkel, you know former chief scientist, and so on and so forth, is really the the, the time lag. Let's say, for instance, you know the federal coalition um, win the next election and they immediately repeal the um, the current legislated on, on on nuclear power. So the earliest that will sort of happen is sort of on the order of what, 2025, 20, 2026. Mm. Um, you then need to then go out to tenders, do all your economic analysis, recruit people from, you know, all over the world to actually scientists and engineers that have experience in, in, in building and, and commissioning uh, uh, nuclear plants. You then then have to go and, okay, we, we you then will make plans, but that will basically people are, will expect a lot of... Um, a lot of pushback from, um, you know, there'll be all sorts of legal challenges in the courts um, around around that, and that you know there simply are a lot of vested, vested interests against against nuclear power. Um, so a lot of people sort of estimate that the the time between changing the legislation and getting your first megawatt hour um, out of of, of um, from a nuclear power station in Australia is on the order of ten years at least. Um, and so, so that takes us to at least sort of 2035, 2036, and and yeah, and and basically, the we think we're going to be nearly done, <laughs> but well, not nearly done, but but you know, more than halfway done um, in terms of the, um, the clean energy system by then. Alex, well, a lot of people say that it's dangerous, that it's too dangerous. We shouldn't consider it at all. If we if we pierce if we pierce through that, what what are some of the the facts and figures around that argument? Well, I think they are. I think the. I think I really encourage people to actually go and do their own independent um, research. Go look at Wikipedia and so on and so forth into the facts and figures around um, costs and and, and 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 danger and and, and safety. People, you know, even something like solar, um, Justin. Um, solar isn't 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 death free. There are people that fall off of roofs all the time and hurt themselves very badly. They do. You know, I'm not equating. Um, you know, incidents like Chernobyl and so on and so forth with, you know, a small amount of deaths falling off of roofs every year. But there, there is no such thing as a zero risk technology. We have to accept a certain level of of, of risk. But I, I think nuclear nuclear is, is proven worldwide to be in, in, in a very, very safe technology. I uh, Yeah, modern nuclear, they, they design them to, you know, to be able to survive things like a plane flying in and, and so on and so forth. And people, I think, um, should have a, an immense degree of, of, of trust in that. What about storage in terms of 
the byproduct, the waste. Is there an opportunity there for Australia to take that on? Yes. I, I, look, in, in my opinion, Justin, yes, there, there is absolutely. Um, in South Australia, there was a yeah, there was a, a royal commission into um, the SA nuclear fuel cycle. Um, yeah, I, I was um, I was quite sad to see that that um, yeah that that was I was defeated and um, yeah there were a lot of people from you know at, um, outside South Australia and, and and people within South Australia as well that, that that opposed it but I really do think it was a, it was a tremendous economic opportunity for the state I think with um, with Australia's uh, population density and geological stability um, there is an incredible opportunity for us to store um, nuclear waste you know if there's simply a part of the world where you're going to do it you should do it. Um, in regions where there are very few people and, um, you know, you expect a high degree of geological stability in addition to, to political stability and, um, you know, or it can't be weaponized or anything like that. And in Australia, really, it, I think we can absolutely put a hand up and make quite a lot of money um, doing that and which we can then use to, um, you know, decarbonize other areas of operations or have a higher quality life or pay for free university or free trade, free um, trades training or whatever we want. It's um, yeah. So I think it's um, I think people as well um, in in analyzing uh, in analyzing nuclear power as well. I think people um, people often analyze things in a in a vacuum, and they don't understand that. Okay, well, saying no to nuclear it, it means that you have to say yes to to something else. Classical example of this is is Japan after after Fukushima. So Japan obviously had a lot of um had a lot of internal opposition to nuclear um, nuclear power in the immediate aftermath of, of Fukushima, which is totally understandable. So in the years afterwards, they you know they um, mothballed a lot of their nuclear reactors, and but what that what that meant is that they had to import a lot more fossil fuel um, from from the rest of the world because that was the only the only alternative that, that that's available to them. And then as a result of that, they saw power prices increase by up to forty percent in some areas of Japan. Um, you know when power prices go up, the, people use less power. Unfortunately, that means a lot of impoverished elderly people use less power. And by some estimates, I had one to 2,000 people die um, purely as a result of those high electricity prices, you know, not to mention going into air pollution and so on and so forth. So, um, so there is nothing free with energy and you always have to look at um, costs and risks and, um, and alternatives. Um, so, um, yeah, so in terms of the nuclear discussion, I really do encourage people to go out and, and, and do their own research into it and, uh, and, quant- and their own quantification of, of uh, risks and so on and so forth. Now, you're looking at this all day, every day, trends, insights, developments. What are some of the things that are happening globally with respect to decarbonisation and energy innovation more broadly? Who's doing things well, Alex? China, <laughs> in a, yes, I think um, yeah, China really do um, control, um, or, ch- or China fundamentally lead the world in a lot of the clean energy technology, um, the refinement of most of the critical minerals, um, you know, and crit- critical materials for uh, the clean energy transition. So those are things like um, cobalt, lithium, uh, graphene, um, even you know the manufacture of solar panels and so on and so forth. Um, all of those. All of those um, areas, China's, um, you know, does upwards of eighty percent of, of of the world's production. Um, so, you know, even even things like rare earth rare earth metals. So you, you can't build a wind turbine without um, we can it one won't be anywhere near as good. You know, without um, rare earths such as uh, uh, I think it's dysprosium and neodymium. 
and uh, and there is literally this one um, one facility outside of China which which can do that sort of rare earth um, rare earth refinement. So maybe it shouldn't be surprising. It, it's it's incredible, um, Justin. Yeah, and it's and honestly, it's it's a little bit. Um, it's it's from some aspects it's it's concerning as well. You know, I think that Australia's um, a- any country's energy system, you know, ideally you'd you'd like it to be um, resilient to, um, you know, have a degree of of sovereign independence and be resilient to potential um, shocks in the supply chain. You know, we we saw this after COVID. Uh, you know, we we saw the depend. Sorry, we saw the um, the impact of supply chain disruptions during COVID more more accurately, and so um, and so. I'd like to hope that you know Australia's energy system, energy system looking out to 2030, 2040, and so on and so forth, um, would be uh, resilient um, to I don't know a conflict in the in the South China Sea, say for instance, where we you know if this if our shipping lanes were closed and we couldn't import inverters and panels and so on and so forth. So there are um, yeah, so 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 China really does lead the world in in clean energy technology, and um, yeah, that, that's that's simply all there is to it. We've seen in in um, in the last few years, um, we've seen um, America and Euro- Europe really try to um, to wake up and, and close that gap. Um, so in the US, they've recently passed they passed a, a large bill um, called the Inflation Reduction Act, um, and so that's calling for um, I think it's uh, all sorts of like inverter manufacturing in the US, um, refinement of clear uh, clean earth materials, clean earth metals, um, mining of of different sorts of metals needed for the the clean energy transition. Um, that's a really is an enormous, um, huge amounts of funding for um, hydrogen and so on and so forth. So that's a really large um, bill that's sort of um, people hoping will, will kickstart the transition in, in the US. So yeah, those are just um, yeah two two um, countries which are which are mo- yeah moving very quickly. Um, yeah, beyond beyond that as well, we see India. So I think I think India is projected to account for something like half of of global growth. In, in energy consumption out, out to 2050, which is a, a mind-boggling uh, amount just, just in one country. So, uh, yeah, there's a huge amount going on in, in energy worldwide. I'd like to touch on the scholarship briefly, if I may. You were the 2019 scholar. You went through the program and the scholarship allowed you to study, uh, as I said, at Oxford University. The sponsor of that was the CBA, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And obviously, the scholarship is built on some of the corporate sponsors. So, in your words, Alex, what does it mean to you to be a CBA scholar? Have you had much to do with um, with the bank since you since you got the scholarship? Um, yeah, well, I'm in, I'm incredibly grateful to um, to the Commonwealth Bank uh, in in supporting uh, my study and, and my career as a scholar. I think that the CBA are taking focusing they're increasingly um, starting to focus on on climate change and what it what it means to to Australia and and their operations. Um, so you know we're starting to they're coming out with um, annual reports now on um, in terms of their ESG framework. Um, they, they've stated as a company they're committed to the Paris Agreement and uh, transitioning to net zero emissions by 2050. So um, yeah, these are all uh, very important steps, and I'm, I'm I'm glad that the bank is uh, is, is moving in that direction. I have had a few um, interactions with the Commonwealth Bank. I did, yeah, did a, a, a um, uh, had a conversation um, with, with um, some members of the bank, as you know, for with one of their in, investor. I think it was a um, uh, some sort of inv- investor conference. Um, and so, yeah, they've been they've been extremely supportive of of, of me, and uh, yeah, have offered to those sorts of discussions and so on. So they've they've been great. In terms of, I mean, we'll probably finish with um, with this little section 
here, Alex. Where do you feel your higher education pathway and your career pivot have helped you to create a I suppose, a, a positive impact on the community and, and the field that you're now working in at large. The education, it's, it's been phenomenal and, and I leverage it every single day. Um, so I've, I've worked at the Australian Energy Market Operator and uh, at UNSW um, and um, I used um, some of the software development skills I learned in my master's to um, in, in both of those roles. So for instance, I was, um, I was using software to analyze um, large data sets concerning... Um, the behavior of rooftop PV and home batteries during um, system disturbances. So that was a part of uh, UNSW's um, project match. Um, and then also, uh, yeah, also used my um, mathematical modeling skills um, for an ad- advice piece um, as part of a broader team, which was advising the SA government on um, uh, integration um, risks concerning very high levels of, of rooftop solar. So, um, and then in my day-to-day job now, um, so one of the uh, areas of mathematics I studied in Oxford was integer programming. And that, that really is at the heart of, of the optimization um, that I, I develop at, at Energy Exemplar. So it, it's, um, yeah, the skills I learn um, every single day and um, they're, they're critical to, to my work. So um, more broadly than that as well, it's um, the uh, Applied Mathematics um, program at Oxford. It, it really did have a philosophy on, um, it, it focused on the philosophy of, of modeling as well. You know, re- really, you know, what are the important aspects of the, of the system that are worth capturing What's simply not worth our time? When is a model too complex? How do you know that a model is any good? Um, can, can you backcast and check it against um, against history and, and prior predictions and, and so on and so forth? And um, just yeah, taking a step back and analyzing those broader questions sometimes is uh, is it's also extremely worthwhile. I, I, I think as well. So um, yeah, so it was it's it's critical critical to my job. Something I leverage every day and. Um, yeah, I'm extremely, extremely, extremely grateful to the General John Monash Foundation and the Commonwealth Bank for supporting me. Alex Makarovsky, 2019 CBA John Monash Scholar. Thanks so much for coming on to the show again, Alex. Your insights have been terrific. And we wish you all the best in the years ahead. Thank you for coming on to the show. Oh, my pleasure, Justin. Yeah, have a great day.